Oh my goodness, you crazy son of a bitch. Do you have any idea what you've just done? You've just discovered the Marts and Lestrap Show podcast hour. This is the show that may or may not be an hour long based on your perception of time and how much I've got to say. So strap yourselves in and prepare your ears for the journey of a lifetime with your host of the Martin Lestrap Show podcast hour, me, you idiot. Welcome everybody to the Martin Lestrap Show podcast hour. This is episode number 143 and I am so very happy that you guys are with me again this week. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode with my hilarious Canadian friend, Liz Hersey, who uh, was was um, a little bit more tame than usual, given that we were actually talking about blogging and podcasting and offering um, advice and, 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 and tips. But, you know, of course, it's Liz, so she still found ways to be, you know, silly and raunchy and inappropriate. Um, but I'm always, always happy to have Liz on the show. This week's episode, I have a wonderful guest, and his name is John Palacino, and he's a horror writer, and I've actually wanted to have John on the show uh, before, so he's a guest that I've been, you know, looking to talk to uh, really since the first time I met him. I actually met John, I've met John twice. Uh, The first time I met him uh, was uh, about two years ago in 2014 at a meeting I attended of the Horror Writers Association in Hollywood. Uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I believe John serves as the vice president of the the Horror Writers Association. Um, I don't know what's, if, if it's for their Hollywood chapter or not. I'll, I'll ask him about it when I when I talk to him in just a little bit. But most recently, the second time that I had an opportunity to meet John was when we when we spoke together on the Horror Writers panel called Writing Fear, which is available for you guys to listen to on episode number 138. But that was a panel that uh, that I had the great pleasure to, to be a part of uh, in October of this year. So, you know, coincided with with Halloween. I, I think the panel itself was October 24th. But, you know, it was sort of, I think it was a Halloween-themed thing at the uh, North Hollywood Library. But anyway, uh, when I was there, had an opportunity to meet John uh, a second time and let him know that, uh, you know, I was, uh, yeah, that I wanted to have him on the show. And so now... A few weeks later, we were able to uh, to, to work it out. Now, uh, John Palacino, he is a very prolific writer. He writes, uh, you know, short stories, novels, articles about horror, and he's been published many, many times over. Uh, his work has appeared in Dark Discoveries, Horror Library, Darkness on the Edge, Lovecraft Easing, Phobophobias, Terror Tales, Harvest Hill, Halloween Spirits, Chiral Mad, Midnight Walk, Halloween Tales, and on and on. That's just to name a few, literally, that's just to name a few of the places that uh, his work has been published in. But he's also had three novels published, uh, along with his short stories and uh, and just articles about horror. He's also had three novels published, starting with his debut novel, Nerves, which came out in April of 2012. Then there was his second novel, Dust of the Dead, which came out in June of 2015, and then most recently, his novel Ghost Heart was published earlier this year, in February of 2016. And I know he's got a novel coming out in 2017, so that'll definitely be something that uh, that I look forward to talking with him about in just a, just a little bit. But then, uh, of course, beyond his novels, John's work as a short story writer, 
has been it's probably been where he's enjoyed his his most success and you know again that that's probably something else that I'll talk to him about in terms of sort of how he sees his 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 work and the arc of his career as a novelist and a short story writer I'd be curious to see you know if um if when he thinks about the writing he does if if one sort of precedes the other I I have no like for for me for example um, like lately I've been writing short stories and I'm putting together a short story collection that I'm publishing next year and I'm very, very excited about it. But when I think about myself as a writer, primarily I think of myself as a novelist who right now is writing short stories for this collection because I'm enjoying it. But primarily I see myself as, as a novelist. And so I'll be, I'll be curious to, to talk to John about that if he has, you know, if he sees himself in, in, in one form as, as, as a novelist or a short story writer or if he just sees himself as a, as an author, but that's something that I that I think I'll, I'll I'd like to talk to him about. But anyway, the the what I was going to say though before I interrupted myself is his his work as a short story writer has received lots of acclaim uh, over the last few years, uh, acclaim which culminated in a huge achievement earlier this year. So in May of this year, 2016, John won the 2016 Bram Stoker Award for superior achievement in short fiction for his short story, Happy Joe's Rest Stop. And I, I, I assume that uh, many of you who are listening uh, can, can likely appreciate the, uh, the, the, the amazing honor it is to, to win a Bram Stoker Award. But in terms of the, 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 the writing and publishing and you know, literary community, uh, as far as horror writing goes, the uh, the Bram Stoker Award that's the that's the pinnacle. That's the that's the highest uh, that that's the highest honor a, a, a horror writer can achieve in, in terms of awards and recognition. So so John and he's he's been uh, he's been nominated previously. So he's he's been knocking on the door uh, for a couple of years, but this year uh, broke through and then won the award for superior achievement in short fiction again for his short story, happy Joe's rest stop. So I definitely plan on talking to John, uh, about that award and just the experience of winning that award. And, uh, incidentally, that story, happy Joe's rest stop, it appeared in the anthology, 18 wheels of horror. And that anthology was published by big time books, uh, which was also edited by Eric Miller. And if perchance the name Eric Miller sounds familiar, it's because Eric also appeared with John and myself on the horror writers panel uh, at the at the Hollywood Library a few weeks back. So um, so I've been I've been very lucky to keep some very good company uh, uh, this year. So I'm very very happy about that. Um, okay, so I'm looking at the I'm looking at the clock. I will be talking to John in just a few minutes. So I'm going to go ahead and begin to wrap up this introduction, but before I do, I just want to remind you, if you have any shopping to do, you should do it on Amazon.com, but before you go to Amazon.com, please first go to the official website of this podcast, which you'll find at martinlestrapsshow.com. When you get there, go to the shop page. You're going to see an Amazon banner at the top. Click on that banner. It's going to take you to Amazon, but... Because you went through this website, and that took you to Amazon, Amazon in turn, they'll kick back a few pennies our way. And then we get to take those pennies and reinvest them back into the show. And that allows us to make the Martin Lestrap Show podcast hour as good as we can possibly make it for you, which is what we strive to do week 
after week after week. So while you're at Amazon, as an example, if you just need some for instances of, you know, things that you can buy, for instance, you can buy all three of John Palacino's novels, Ghost Heart, Dust of the Dead, and Nerves. You can buy them all on Amazon.com. And if you first go through this website to Amazon, then not only does, does John benefit because you've now purchased his novels, but this show benefits because you went through the official website of this podcast. And so in that sense, uh, everybody wins. And that's, that's, never, that's never a bad thing, right? Also, uh, if you're not already subscribed to the podcast, I would ask you to please subscribe on iTunes. It is absolutely free. It is my pleasure to give you the show for free. And so when you subscribe every week, a new episode drops into your, into your iTunes playlist. It is my pleasure to do so. You never have to think about it. It is like magic. Just poof, you'll wake up, and there it is. If you're not an iTunes listener, the show is also available on Stitcher Radio, which you can find at stitcher.com. And actually, just this morning, I, I had no idea, but I found out that the podcast is also available on Podcat. So, P-O-D-C-A-T, Podcat. So, that's cool. I'm, I'm happy to know that the show is in uh, several places. And Podcat, was, you know, I, I was there this morning. I happened to see that the show was on there, so I was looking around the website. It's very easy to use, very intuitive. They've got a search bar at the top. You can just type in my name, Martin Lestraps. The show comes up. Uh, all 143 episodes are available. So so that's cool. I was actually very happy to see that. And, uh, yeah, again, I'm looking at the clock. It's, it's pretty much about that time for me to talk to John Palacino. So let me go ahead and wrap up this introduction. And without any further ado, here is my conversation with Bram Stoker award-winning horror author John Palacino. I was born in Queens, New York, um, and I lived in Queens for the first few years of my life. Um, and I don't remember much about it other than an apartment when we had two Siamese cats. Um, but I really grew up in uh, southeastern Connecticut and um, in Fairfield County. The town was Norwalk, Connecticut, between uh, Greenwich and uh, Darien and Stanford, that area, if anybody's familiar. Um <laughs> Yeah, and I was I was you know late seventies early eighties child, and all the things that that um, entailed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we it was very classic. You know, uh, bike bike riding and running around, climbing trees, blowing up my army men, kind of a childhood. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I had a twin brother. Um, I still have a twin brother, <laughs> <laughs> Michael, and uh, he's also a writer. And uh, um, we grew up. Uh, my dad was a massive influence on me and still is to this day. Um, he worked for CBS news as a graphic artist and director. And we would, we would often go in with him to his work and I would just kind of wander the sets of the soap operas. And, you know, then I'd go watch my dad doing the graphics. Like he, he was on the forefront of the, of the CGI uh, movement, um, doing all the, um, fly-ins and the maps and all that stuff he, he started with walter cronkite and went all the way through dan rather's reign and uh just watching my dad work all the time and do that and make a living as an artist was amazing and my dad was such a big influence because to me he came from tennessee and he had nothing and he, he went to the uh, school of art in new york of design and 
literally built his life and went on to win um, Emmys and all kinds of awards and made a living as an artist, which I thought was pretty remarkable and still do. <laughs> that, that is so amazing. I'm sitting here thinking about how amazing that would be to be able to like just walk around the the new sets and soap opera sets and have this have this sort of a behind the scenes access to to television and sort of this, I mean I, I mean definitely you know creativity, but um, like like when I was a kid, that certainly was um, I would have absolutely. Love to have seen that because I because we because it sounds like we're about the same age. I was born in the nine you know seventy seven, grew up in the eighties, and um and you know watching television was just a huge part of my life. So I just I'm just sitting here just jealously thinking about how cool that would have been to actually have access to to that sort of stuff. Yeah, it certainly was, and it, you know that was my normal. Um, my my normal was watching people create stuff and build stuff, and that's how they made a living. Hmm. Um, on my dad's side and yeah, so I'm 72, so I got a few years on you, but same, same, uh, <laughs> era. and, uh, you know, um, th- on the flip side was my mom, um, and her family who I adore, who were, um, very heavy military and they owned a auto body shop mm-hmm. and that was my local thing. And, and actually there's a, you know, a tremendous amount of creativity in auto body, you know, um, because oh, you're, sure. You're filling in gaps and it's very paint. You've got to match the colors of the paint and you've got to match the fade of a car. And, you know, I, you know, growing up, I, I thought they were all geniuses. Like, how the hell? And I would watch them do it and I would still blow my mind how they could, you know, listen to a car engine and know what was wrong with it. Um, and I ended up working there for many years, too. So there was this, you know, I felt an ideal for me mix of intellectual creativity and then you know hard physical labor too Mm -hmm. um so i felt like i was i was pretty well rounded growing up between the two families um and inspired equally for different reasons absolutely yeah yeah and that's such a even even the um the you know the say say working in a uh you know like working on cars and just sort of that very sort of um I don't. Know, I, I guess sort of that day to day sort of. Uh, um, I, I guess manual labor of just sort of hard work, but that's that sort of work is so. It's so central, I think, to to being a successful creative person, whether you're a writer or a filmmaker or whatever. That even though the creativity part is an awful lot of fun, you still have to have that part of you that's you know that's dedicated and willing to put in a you know a hard day's work to get this fun creative stuff done so that's a really really good uh, great background to have yeah i i agree and I'm, I'm still very much like that you know in in a lot of ways um i i definitely err more towards um the intellectual i mean i wasn't born a huge guy <laughs> <laughs> you know my cousins are all football players and, and now they're cops and and navy seals and stuff i was a little slighter of build <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, they used to say I was like Mick Jagger and stuff because I weighed 90 pounds wet until I was about 21. (laughs) (laughs) But I'd still go out there. I'd be lifting tires and stuff and everybody would be cracking up because they'd be like, holy crap. You know what? (laughs) You know, that guy's going to – that guy – I'd jump out of the tow truck and they'd be like, what? You know? (laughs) I'd be like, no, I'm going to chain up your car. We're going to go. And they'd be like, wow, okay. He did it. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, so growing up uh, uh, in the 70s, so it sounds so in the 70s, you were just kind of, you were a kid, the 80s, you were more of a teenager. So 
growing up during during those decades, how did you generally uh, entertain yourself? Well, you know, it's really it's really funny because we lived way up on a hill, and this was just before cable hit, and we really didn't get TV reception. Mm-hmm. And I mean, me and my dad climbed up and we put this massive antenna that that killed pigeons, but really <laughs> get <laughs> still didn't get any TV. So my dad bought one of those U-matic machines, those big three quarter inches. And once in a while, he'd he'd get tapes, and we would watch stuff on tapes. Like he'd get an episode of Battlestar Galactica or something, or a copy of Jaws or Star Wars, and we'd just watch it over and over and over again. So we didn't really watch a lot of the sitcoms and stuff like that growing up until much later. And by then, I was already off and doing my own thing. Mm -hmm. And I also found a lot of entertainment through books. And both my parents were heavy readers and encouraged me young to grab anything I wanted to read. And, And they really liked my mom, loved Anne Rice, and my dad was a big Stephen King guy. And, um, and Ray Bradbury, he loved those, those guys a lot. And they would just pass me books and say, Hey, you like that? Check this out. Check that out. And I, I still have my mom's, uh, copy of interview of the vampire that she gave me when I was like 11 years old mm-hmm. and I had Anne sign it. So that was really cool. Oh, that's awesome. But she, she would, they were, they were always reading and always, you know, my, you know, encouraging me to, to, and that they would want to talk about the books and stuff, which sometimes got embarrassing, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like, especially, you know, the Anne Rice stuff was very, you know, homoerotic and stuff. And my mom would have great conversations with me about it. Like, Hey, what do you think of that? And, you know, so it was really, you know, really great reading all that. I mean, that was a, a big form of entertainment. And a lot of the, a lot of the kids, we had a comic book shop, believe it or not, down the bottom of our hill, this tiny little comic book shop called Galaxy Comics. And all us kids would go in there, and he had like this little box underneath where it was like a nickel or a dime for comics. Oh, wow. So we'd get 10 comics for a buck, and we'd all exchange them. So that was a lot. That had a lot to do with my uh, <laughs> forming a young creative mind. <laughs> That's really, really awesome. Yeah. So, so when okay, so when I think about uh, reading, particularly at a, at a young age, for me it was mostly comic books. I really didn't uh, develop my own uh, love of reading um, this prose fiction until I was about uh, eighteen. So for me, comic books was was a big part of it. And a, a lot of the reading that I think about, um, I generally think about is, uh, say, like high school, and there's sort of the the, the general um, familiar canon of books in, in high school from, say, like uh, Lord of the Rings and the – not, I'm sorry, not, <laughs> Lord of the Flies. What am I saying? Um, uh, the Great Gatsby, Romeo and Juliet. There's that very you know, uh, familiar canon of books. And uh, and so I, I, I remember sort of, you know, always went in trying to do well, but I always had trouble sort of connecting with, with a lot of – the books that were assigned in in, uh, in my high school classes, and so then for that reason, I just sort of assumed where I, I I must not like reading I must not like reading very much because these are sort of the books that are these are the books that we're supposed to read. And if I don't like this, I guess I must not like reading. And then it wasn't until I, I was maybe eighteen or so when I started discovering writers who weren't in my high school classes. But I was like, oh wow, this is I like this, so I guess I do like reading. So I guess yeah, I just needed to find. The right authors, but it sounds like for you, you were actually really fortunate that at an at a early age, you were finding the authors that uh, that both that not only spoke to you but kind of alerted you early on that this was something that you enjoyed doing is is reading. Oh, absolutely. Um, 
you know, and, and both my parents are definitely, you know, genre, genre people. And, you know, also as a young kid, my dad, they were Trekkies. Embarrassing <laughs> 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 story alert. Um, so, um, you know, I remember going to some of the cons in New York City um, and, you know, seeing all the Trekkies and seeing, you know, all that. But at the time, you know, a Star Trek convention wasn't just Star Trek. It was everything. You know, it was just kind of, you know, everybody who was into science fiction, horror and and fantasy kind of gathered. Mm-hmm. And they'd have screenings and they'd have special guests and, and um, you know, just seeing all that, you know, and, and seeing like the smaller presses and then. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being able to meet all those neat people, it was really influential. And I always loved those stories. Mm. Oh, I was, I, I'll never forget when I was a little, little boy, we had a drive in and we would go and, you know, we saw Greece several times and star Wars endlessly. <laughs> and, um, we loved it. And then one day my dad played, uh, um, night of the living dead for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I thought, you know, Hey, this is, this is cool. It's a little boring, but you know, it's cool. And then that ending hits, and the protagonist is killed. <laughs> and I was like, holy crap. And my dad's like, yeah, that's a story, kid. And I was like, oh, my God. And I was hooked. And then that weekend, we went to the drive-in, and it was a double feature of Demon Seed and then Alien. And holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> Mind melt. <laughs> so, um, you know, they, the, that that I, I'll never forget that. Demon Seed was kind of boring until the end, until the, you know, the, the baby comes out and it's a robot. I'm like, oh, wow, okay. And then Alien starts, and we're just like, I don't think I ever felt fear in my life. Screaming <laughs> <laughs> dread, like, but I loved it, you know? And I loved the art, and, you know, it was just so, like, holy crap, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and, and, like, I know for, for me, like, when I had, like, a similar experiences, like, say, if, if I, uh, you know, well, well I, I guess as a kid, I, I wasn't, um, I didn't necessarily know I wanted to be a writer as a kid, but like as I as I got older and I would have the experience of watching, say, just a really amazing movie that either made me made me feel great fear or made me feel dread or it was thrilling or it was exciting or whatever. It it, it's, it felt so much like like a magic trick. Like how did, like how do you do that? Like how do you how do you how can I reverse engineer what it is they're doing and figure out how to do that myself? Because I I couldn't. I, I just felt like I was watching just like uh, just just like some act of of wizardry that you could tell a story and take me on a journey and make me feel like like when you watched Alien and felt this amazing fear and 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 I would so when I would feel that I think that's that's awesome I want to do that but how do you do that like how do I how do I even begin to to, to learn how to tell a story to to make somebody feel feel that way um, and and in your case by the way so so at what point did you figure out that not only did you enjoy reading books and, and then engaging with these authors, but at what point did you figure out that this was not only something that you could do, but something that you actually wanted to do? Well, um, very early on, um, I was encouraged to, you know, be creative and, and, you know, I, I was in art classes at school from an early age, but, um, I remember just writing some shorter stories and, you know, getting a lot of notice at school from the other kids because they were goofy and kind of scary and they all kind of had little twists Mm -hmm. and I'd get attention for those. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, they'd be in like the little school, 
you know, mimeographed things they put out and, you know, about evil cats that ate bad people and stuff like that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, <laughs> that kind of clicked with me like, this is cool. <laughs> you know, I have an audience and, and they, they like what I'm doing. And, you know, I'm talking to the pretty girl, you know, in class <laughs> for four seconds. But, you know, it's, you know, it, and then I would show them to my folks and they would they would dig them. So, you know, it. And I just, you know, I always loved it. I loved that idea of creating stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, try, I tried many different things. I mean, for a while, I wanted to be like Tom Savini and be a special effects makeup artist. Mm-hmm. Um, then I, you know, I went into filmmaking. You know, I played music in bands. And, you know, it always came back, though. My, my deepest love was always writing. I loved writing. I loved the freedom. And I loved the things that it could do that none of the other arts could really do. Mm-hmm. I loved that it was this interior movie that was projected and i always thought that was just like to do that was the ultimate (laughs) yeah absolutely isn't that i think about that all the time but that's just one of the one of my favorite things about writing is that that you know you and i can read the exact same book and we can enjoy the exact same book and yet we can have a unique experience because the, the the book that exists in my imagination isn't exactly the same as the book that exists in your imagination and then, uh, and then, of course, as writers, being able to have the experience of actually writing a story, and then, and you know, hearing that people enjoyed it, and sort of knowing that you know, I, you know, like you put the words on the page, but they brought it to life in, in their imagination, and that's it. Really, is just one one of my very favorite things about uh, about writing, both as a reader and as a as an author. Yeah, absolutely. You, you know, I mean, that's one of the great gifts you have as an artist is uh, giving people something that they can reflect upon mm-hmm. and they can put their experiences and hinge their life onto, mm-hmm. which is really a cool, unique thing, like like your term magic. It is it is a magic trick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the only other art that kind of can do that is, you know, you know, music and songs can kind of do that, too. But they're a little bit more insistent on their world building. Mm-hmm. But. But like you said, with with writing and and storytelling in that format, it really becomes such a personal um, journey for the reader. Mm-hmm. It's it's really neat to usher that in. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And and so just a, a little bit earlier when we, you know, we were talking about the uh, that on on the one hand, being creative, uh, you know, I, I would I would venture to say that the main reason we do it is because it's it's just fun and it brings us joy to do it. But then also in terms of actually producing getting work out there writing novels and short stories and, and and actually doing the work it means that you have to dedicate yourself to to doing the work and so uh on on your blog all all that withers which uh, folks can find at jan uh, com, uh right around halloween you wrote an article called how do you find time to write and it's a wonderful article has some really sound advice in there and so I was hoping that uh, maybe you could sort of talk a little bit about the things you talked about in that article and maybe expound a little bit on exactly how do you find time to write? How do you, John, and how can other people who would like to do what you do, what, what's, what are some of the tips that you can give them about finding time to write? Great. Um, this, is, this is a favorite topic of mine lately because we are in such a fragmented world and there's so much noise. Everything's being thrown at us a million miles an hour, hundreds and hundreds of distractions mm-hmm. for me and um on one hand uh, you know that's good and bad um but you know honestly ever since i've been growing up people have said i don't have the time to write <laughs> 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 you 
you know, I don't, I don't think it's Facebook or the internet or anything. I think when you have a passion, you will find the time. Mm -hmm. That being said, you know, as we all grow older and mature, our responsibilities change. And I think by the time most people are ready to really write, their lives have kind of taken off. They're married, their kids are starting to grow up, and they're finally like, have hit that point in their life where like, I'm ready to really rock on this writing. I know what I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah. crap. But crap, I got to bring little Timmy and little Janie to school. I got this. I got that. I got a job. I got a wife. I got a diet. <laughs> so, um, you know, w what I've come up with is I write before I'm really awake every morning. And what I do is, thankfully, technology, you don't even need a phone, but I use my phone and I use Google Docs on my phone. And I write for 10 or 15, maybe 20 minutes. Um before anything starts, because once you check the email, once you start opening the doors and feeding the dogs, your brain shifts into life mode. <laughs> <laughs> and I always feel like if I if I can get anything down, even if it's a paragraph, you know, and that's all I can get. I've written for the day mm -hmm. and it adds up quickly. <laughs> and that also sets the tone for the day, because even if I only get a paragraph, I know during the day. The rest is going to come at some point and it's going to start working itself as so long as I planted that seed in the morning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'll often be able to go back later. But I think if people, you know, and, and some folks, their brains work good when the day is done. They can't relax until the day is done, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, or, or they have, you know, their lunch break is their special time and they take 20 minutes out of an hour lunch break. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, and the other cool thing too about that, like, let's say, you know, let's say you, 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 I was going to say only come up with a paragraph, but I mean, really that, that can be, that can still be a, a, a good amount of writing for the day, but let's say you come up with a paragraph, then when, you know, when it's time to write tomorrow, you sort of have this momentum you started the day before and you don't have to necessarily start from scratch and you have this, uh, you have something that, that you're, you're building on. And then pretty soon, like you're saying, you're maybe you're writing on your lunch break, you're writing at the end of the day or you know, you're, you're, you're commuting to or from work and you find yourself thinking about this, this story that you started. And I think you even touched on this on the article, but just all of a sudden you're just, now you're just thinking about this story all the time. So even when you're not writing, you're kind of writing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, our unconsciousness is always writing. I mean, that's proof in our dreams mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, and, and, you know, I, I, I think that our brains have many, many levels they're working on. And just to keep that conversation going is is really important. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I'm also big on permissions because there's a lot of there's a lot of rules out there mm -hmm. about what to do, not to do when you're writing. Like you have to write a certain amount every day. You have to write every day. You have to write, you know, yada yada yada. You have to write everything in order. Don't don't stop until you get to the end. Don't go back and do this. Don't jump ahead. Mm -hmm. And I, I I don't subscribe to that because you know what? What I have found over time is. If, let's say you're working on that that book, and it's, you, you have this great vision for a scene halfway through the book, and that day you wake up and you're like, I, I I'm stuck. So go write that scene three <laughs> chapters away that you're that's in your head that you know you've seen play in your head like a movie a hundred times. Write that damn thing down because you know what? More often than not, when you write that, it's going to illuminate where you were stuck mm -hmm. early. Something a, a phrase in that will go, oh shit, that was that was the key to that other scene I didn't get. So, you know, and my one of my last books, Ghost Heart, I did something I've never done before, which is I wrote the very last scene before I wrote the whole book. Oh, that's interesting. Because I dreamt that scene 
probably several times and I was seeing the words and I was seeing the sentences and they were rewriting themselves in my dreams. And I was like, man, I better put this down because it's going to (laughs) go. I'm like, I don't know. Maybe it's not going to, you know, maybe this is a bad thing because I've been always told, you know, write word one, you know, in chronological order all the way to the end and don't jump ahead and don't jump back and don't correct anything. And I, you know, it really actually worked out really well because I knew what the ending was. It set up the tone Mm -hmm. and I was able to kind of put plants and seeds earlier in the book that led me there. That's awesome. But you know, (laughs) everybody's a little different. (laughs) That's awesome. And also, I mean, just, just really great advice. I I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with the, um, the sort of getting away from what otherwise might be seen as, you know, rules of things to do and not do as far as writing goes. Cause like, I know for me, particularly when I was, um, like, so I was about 18 when I first really felt like this is something I, I really enjoy and I want to do and I want to pursue and I didn't quite know how to do it. Like I tried, you know, learning on my own, just sort of just reading short stories and novels and then trying to, to mimic what I was reading, but I felt very incapable of doing it. So I, so then I also remember when I was in college and, um, and I had an opportunity to, to major in English and I was very excited because now I felt like, okay, well now I'm going to finally get some a little bit of structure, you know, here's this thing that I've been trying to do, but now I'll get a little bit of instruction and structure on what it looks like and how to pursue this. And I remember, um, n- not with all my teachers, I only had a couple of creative writing teachers, but, but one in particular, it was, she was the, the, the first one I had. And I, I, I know in my heart she meant well, but so much of her teaching was don't do this, do this, don't do that. And all it did was just close me up and make me sort of scared to write because all of a sudden I didn't want to break a rule or do something wrong. And, and, you know, because she sort of had a certain level of authority, she'd been, she'd published a few books and she was, uh, you know, known in her field of writing. I felt, well, she, she knows. And so then I, I, I felt so clammed up that I couldn't just write because every sentence I was writing, I felt like, Oh, am I supposed to do this? Oh shit. I shouldn't do that. Oh, wait a minute. I'm not. And then I just wasn't enjoying myself anymore. And it wasn't until a little while later that, I, you know, I sort of just had just, I, I had to have, I don't even know if it was an epiphany. It was just sort of, I just kind of had to say, you know, just fuck it and just, just write. And if you're writing something shitty, at least you're having fun. And then I just realized if I'm just writing, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's more fun. And the writing was ultimately, it was, it was fine. And it was better for, for not acknowledging the things that, and again, these were probably things that worked really well for her. And so she wanted to pass them on to us, but but like you were saying, it's sort of, you know, everybody's going to be a little bit different. So it's, you know, you can't necessarily, in fact, I would even, I'd be, maybe, maybe it's a rule. Don't follow other people's rules because, you know, it, it might, you know, hinder your writing more than, more than, uh, more than it, it definitely should. Also your, your advice too, again, for like your article, I, th- I think it really did have an effect on me because, um, so I'm, I'm working on a, I'm putting together a, a short story collection, which in and of itself is something that I never thought I would do because I primarily see myself as a novelist, but I sort of organically found myself doing a short story collection. So I'm really enjoying the process. And so, uh, over the weekend, it was actually Saturday morning. Um, I woke up kind of early and I just was just thinking about stories and writing and just wondering if I had any new stories to, to kind of play with. And then, um, I started to an idea. I started teasing out an idea, still a little bit sleepy from waking up, but awake enough to kind of think about it. And then I think I was thinking about your article. And so my phone was there. So I picked up my phone and I just took out to whatever my, my notes apps is. And, and I just started, um, just, 
I, just bullet pointing just uh, the story as, as I saw it, not even writing complete sentences, um, just kind of sort of beginning to end pieces of dialogue or just things that I saw happening. And then I emailed that to myself. And then I ended up spending, you know, a few hours in the day writing the short story that now I'm like really excited and proud of. And I, and I'm, I'm fairly certain that was, <laughs> that was a direct result of, you know, reading your article. How do you find time to write? Oh, that's awesome. I mean, that really makes my week to hear that. <laughs> and, you know, I, I I think, you know, going back a little to address um, teaching writing and teaching the arts, you know, one of the one of the most profound moments I had in learning writing was when I was told things like, don't begin sentences with I, don't <laughs> use passive voice, don't use L-Y verbs, yeah. don't use any, any speech modifiers. And then I'd read these teachers' books, and they did all of it. <laughs> and I'd be like, I'd come back, and I'd say, well, okay, maybe it's just them. I mean, they're not, you know, the hugest writer in the world. But then I would grab a Harper Lee book. I'd grab, you know, J.D. Salinger and all these classics that I loved. And I'm like, wait a minute. Catcher in the is mostly passive voice. It's filled with L.Y.'s. Everything is a speech modifier. This guy is lauded up and down New York City like he's, you know, Einstein of writing, you know? And, and so, you know, screw you guys, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm like, you know, going back and I'm, I'm over pruning all my stories because of this advice and they're not selling and they're so clinical and cold following all these like do's and don'ts. And I'm like, man, that's not really good advice at all. Yeah, I, I think, you know, and, and here's here's another really big point. And I did a lot of meditating on this um, a couple of years ago because we had Dan Brown coming out and we had Twilight and we had all these quote-unquote bad writers right even Stephen King up until recently was considered an awful writer mm -hmm. by establishment now he's been around so long that people our age are saying hey screw you he rules you know <laughs> we're going to give him the award anyway but I think what so much of this boils down to even J.K. Rowling the people are saying that um but what, what it really boils down to is voice and the reason I feel that Fifty Shades of Grey and all these books are 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 popular is because of that authorial voice. Mm -hmm. People want to hear stories from these people. They don't care because it's like, you know, you, we all have those relatives that when they talk, you listen. They may not be eloquent. They may be a little bit ham-fisted or, 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 you know, bass or something like mm -hmm. that. <laughs> but you want to listen to what they say. They have that certain thing. And I think that's, as authors, what we really need to look for versus a mechanical system Mm -hmm. of telling stories that were told. And I think that is the magic where you get a Joe Lansdale story, you're in his hands and you don't want to, you, you, you don't want to stop until he's done. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And like, like JK. And I think that's really the, the trick with twilight. Oh, why is that? It's so poorly written, but it isn't because her voice is there and you want to be with those characters. You want to learn about Edward and, and Bella and them. Mm -hmm. you want to, even though you're like, well, She's not telling it the most eloquent way, but you, 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 they like her voice. Absolutely, I, I could, I couldn't agree with you more. And, uh, and again, as I, as you were talking, I was reflecting more on, say, my my experience. So, in terms of of, of learning that lesson, I think, and so for me, it was another writing teacher when I was in college. His name is James Brown. I, I had him on the show a, a couple of years ago, and um, just a, a wonderful mentor for me. And so, like in his class, it was the exact opposite experience where it wasn't a, it, it wasn't it wasn't you know here's the rules and here's the do's and here's the don'ts. 
and it really was just more about giving us just the just the terrain to 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 tell stories and then to workshop them and talk about them and read each other's stories and and he would sort of help he would give us um a certain level of guidance in terms of you know like he could see maybe what we were doing with the story so he could say okay you know maybe uh, maybe think about this, like what you know, what was this character's motivation, or how might them doing this affect that, or just. But they, but they, but it was never. I don't have any one memory of him ever saying like, "Don't do this" or "Avoid this." It was all very encouraging and just, just right. And so, very much in that atmosphere, I discovered what what you were talking about. I think as I discovered, um, what I, I guess what I consider my. I, I don't know. I don't know if I have a singular. I don't know if I have a writing voice, but I definitely know when I sit to write. It's, 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 um, I, I feel comfortable just like if I, I'm at, I'm at, I think I'm at the point in my development as a writer where like, like over the weekend, like I said, I, I had an idea that was very much sparked by the, the advice in your article and that I could take this idea and then sit down and, and write it and not think twice about the voice. Cause I'm just very comfortable with that where early on, I felt like the, the writing voice was a thing that that you somehow had to cultivate and it was somehow separate from you, almost like you were doing uh, an impersonation of a, of a writer or something. And uh, only later did I realize that it's the exact opposite that you strip everything away and it's just whatever that authentic voice is in your, in your mind and your imagination. Like that's, that's the voice. And that, and then that's, I couldn't agree more that that's, that's what people are drawn to more than anything is, is the, you know, your voice, the voice on the page and, and the story you're telling and, and you know, I mean, I, I, with with few exceptions, the, the the readers who have been kind enough to not just read my work but uh, tell me nice things about it, it's it's almost never about the the mechanics of of the writing or, or the word choice or the sentence structure. It's it's always about whatever story it is that that they engaged with or the characters that that they engaged with. So, I think that's just really great insight on your part. Yeah, and I you know I I think that holds true in any art form. Um, you know, if you look at music, how many people aren't great singers that, but that we love them mm-hmm. because they're so unique. We know when Mick Jagger is singing, mm-hmm. is he Pavarotti? No. You know, are there better singers in rock and roll than him? Sure. But there's something about his voice that everybody wants to listen to. You know, you're like, oh, it's Mick. Cool. Or Axl Rose. Oh God. You know, or James Hetfield or whoever you're into mm-hmm. There's something like maybe not technically they're not proficient. Maybe then, you know. I mean, even Freddie Mercury was was not a classically great singer. He sang from his throat. He did the number one thing every voice teacher said not to do. (laughs) (laughs) And hey, look, one of the best voices ever. Right. So, you know, I I think that's absolutely true with painting. I mean, you go if you're going into Warhol and Pollock and, you know, why who would want a Jackson Pollock? Well, because it's a Jackson Pollock. (laughs) (laughs) He's the only one that really can nail that. Keith Haring's the only one that can really do that right, and uh, and I, I think that's you know same thing. You know, if you look at like Gillian Flynn, she's got the whole girl book thing going. Uh-huh. <laughs> Everybody else is trying to get on that train, but <laughs> you know she's got that voice. You know, when you read yeah. her book, you know, like oh, man. you know she's spinning me. She's got me spinning here. <laughs> Damn, <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but I'm loving it because this is this is going to be fun. <laughs> That's awesome, and, and you know, in a similar vein too. I, um, like, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually want this to happen to me, but I, I've, I've often had the thought that, you know, if, if, if I was working on a book and I had some notes that I was working off, I, I generally work off of outlines. So, like, I like to, 
I like to see the story as fully as I can um, in sort of a bare bones outline form and then start working on it. And I've often had the thought that, you know, in, in just a worst case scenario, some other author in the world um, gets a hold of my outline and they like the idea and they decide to write the same book based on the same outline that it doesn't necessarily concern me because, you know, it's, 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 they're, they're not going to, they don't have my voice or my imagination. They might write a, a, a perfectly fine book, but it's still not going to be the book I'm going to write because, because, you know, one of the great things about all of us as, as writers is our voice is unique just, just by its nature. Our voice is based on our, the, the totality of our, our life experience. Like if, if you and I wrote the same story, it wouldn't be the same because I wasn't born in New York. I didn't grow up in Connecticut. I, I didn't get to walk around newsrooms and soap operas uh, sets. And even if those things don't become part of the story, that's still part of your experience that ultimately colors the, the writing you do. And so, so again, back to your point that as long as you're you know, not feeling bound down by, by, by rules and things you need to do and you just let yourself write, all of those things in some form or fashion filter into your writing and it helps create that, that unique authorial voice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, that is so, that is so, so right on. Um, if we're the basic elements of the shining, we're all going to write different books. Mm -hmm. We're all going to focus on different things. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Stephen King leaned heavily on the alcoholism because mm -hmm. he was an alcoholic at the time. You know, you and I may go a completely different route, you know, mm -hmm. I singled that, you know, I would probably lean on something more like that. That would be where my horror would be found. Mm -hmm. But we would also have those basic elements. And, you know, it's one of the things that comes up time and time again. I don't want to tell anybody my story because they're going to steal my idea. <laughs> right. I, I hear that all the time. I'm out in L.A. all the time. People don't say, ah, oh, Universal's going to steal your idea. Well, they're not going to steal me. You know, they can steal a couple elements, but there's only so much that they're going to be able to take. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, when you're around a while, you start realizing that because even in screenplays, there's, you know, voices and stuff that, that come through. There's where, where are you going to put the camera? Where are you going to start the scene? Mm -hmm. That's so unique. Like you said, your experiences inform those things. And I think that's one thing that all authors and creative people really need to, to, to uh, to worry more about finding other than saying, I'm going to come up with a new monster or a new scenario. <laughs> yes. Come up with a high concept idea. Nobody else has ever had, you know, it's going to be lug nuts versus, you know, zip drives, <laughs> you know, on a speedway of death and nobody's ever done it. Well, that's great. But if you execute it badly, it's going to be garbage. Yeah. You know, you know, we, we sci-fi channels filled with great high concept ideas done badly <laughs> you know that nobody's ever thought of before but god maybe they shouldn't have <laughs> you know that's such so. a great point and, and even even sort of on the opposite end but you sort of alluded to it like you see a trend happening in writing so you think oh let me let me write to that trend but if it's something that you weren't excited or passionate about to begin with then it's probably not going to be Awesome. Whereas if you just just write the stuff that that gets you excited, uh, whether there's a trend or not, that's it's you know that story's going to be it's going to be better. And you know, I mean, sometimes it just it, you, you might just get lucky. You just might write something that feels really really fun and natural to you, and it just might just so happen to turn out that once that story is ready to enter the world, people are really into that stories, and there could just be a little bit of serendipity, and that could be cool. But 
but the, the other end of it too is like if you're chasing a trend by the time you finish your work it's likely going to be over anyway now you're going to have this the story that you weren't that passionate about and you were only trying to 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 fit into a trend and the trends kind of sort of faded out so so yeah definitely just definitely just write the stuff that you're excited about and, and maybe maybe you are excited about uh, some really high content thing and if that's the case cool but if you're not if you're doing it for the wrong reasons which anything other than you're passionate about and this is what you want to write is likely not the right reason so uh couldn't couldn't agree with you couldn't agree with you more there um as far as your your writing goes too you, you mentioned being in, in los angeles and so uh yeah. so you and i we've we've we had the, we, we've we've met twice most recently we we had an opportunity to be on the uh, the horror writers panel in the uh, at the hollywood north hollywood library which was just a really great experience and uh, a couple years before that, and I wouldn't blame you if you don't remember, we met briefly when I went to a uh, a meeting of the Horror Writers Association in uh, in Hollywood, and uh, and I had a great time at the meeting. It was the only meeting I attended, but I really loved the atmosphere and I loved the group and I loved the things that you guys were were talking about. Um, I was trying to remember. I, I know that you are. Um, I know you work in a leadership position with with the organization. I was trying to remember if you're the the vice president. President of Vice, I like to say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I'm the vice president um, of the Horror Writers Association, uh, international level, and I'm the co-chair of the LA chapter. That's awesome. That's yeah, awesome. It's, I, I don't know why they would let me do this, but they, <laughs> um, you know, I kind of run. I kind of run the LA chapter alongside Lisa Morton, and we're really, you know, it's all about empowering my fellow writers. Um, it's not. It's evolved into not just me up on stage reading from a list. You know, I have, we have several other people that take on different uh, aspects. Like we have Eric Gennard, who runs, you know, the uh, markets. Like he finds markets and shares them with people. We have Kate Jones sharing the events that are coming up. Uh, Lisa talks about the mothership, and I'm kind of more of a uh, ringleader position at this point. I kind of try to organize it and say, hey, this is Lisa. She's going to tell us about the mothership. And I think that's a really important thing for writers because we are moving to an age where we are all having to do our own publicity and fly our own freak flags constantly. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really good for writers to step out of their shell and realize, man, I got to get up in front of people. I have to learn to speak. I have to learn to kind of, you know, organize myself beyond just making a great book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that really helps. Absolutely. <laughs> and also, like one of the one of the things that I really loved about the the atmosphere when i had the opportunity to attend the that particular meeting was the was what was was that camaraderie it was sort of the um it, i mean there there's certainly um pra uh, pragmatically speaking there's the uh, the networking opportunities you can meet other authors you can talk about other other opportunities like you said uh eric Gennard, who um i was um uh, i was able to talk to him on actually on the podcast uh he was on early on, I think, a couple of years when I just started the podcast, and so absolutely loved talking to to Eric. But as you say, you know, his his the, the role he served in the meeting that I was that I was at was letting letting everybody know here's some opportunities coming up, here's some uh, here's some publications that are accepting stories, here's some of the guidelines, and yep. just sort of having an opportunity to to be in a group like that where you know I if when I was especially when I was just trying to learn and just trying to figure things out. That it would have been so beneficial if I, you know, if I'd had access to something like that, or at the very least, just knew about a group like that. I think it would have made a a huge difference um, in my in my um, early development 
for sure. So um, I really love the work you guys do with the uh, with the HWA. Oh, well, well, thank you. And, you know, speaking to, you know, to your point of, you know, I wish I had it then. Well, you know, as we as we, you know, mature as artists, I think one of the most important things we can do is mentoring. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be any official thing. But one of the things with um, helping other people out is how much it really helps you. And I wasn't sure about that at first. I mean, I kind of got dragged into mentoring. (laughs) <laughs> and I know this is sounding very cultish, but it's <laughs> it's not. Um, I, I had a mentor, Usman Malik. People may have heard of him now. He's gone on to do some unbelievable uh, work, and and one he's winning awards like left and right, and he's he's brilliant. But one of the things that I realized while mentoring him was he he wrote to me one day he goes, "Hey John, have you heard about this Thomas Ligotti guy? Oh my God!" And he went on and on about Ligotti, and I'm like, "Man, I loved Ligotti, and I haven't read him in years." And it kind of reignited my passion because, you know, as you go on, you kind of get a little jaded and you kind of know the tricks and, you know, being around people who are passionate again, you know, really kind of keeps you young at heart in that way. And it's really cool and inspiring. And you get a lot out of it just in that regard. And purely selfishly as a writer, you've got to start realizing, well, how am I going to help this person? And then you realize, well, this is me figuring out who I am, too. Mm -hmm. This is fine-tuning my instrument. This is keeping me sharp. This is keeping my guns old and ready, too. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and and even to that point, too, like, I, I remember, you know, it like, especially just, it, you know, it just felt like so many years, it was so many years of uh, this journey of just trying to learn how to write. And then once I got a little bit comfortable, okay, how do I, how do I tell a story? And then when I got kind of, kind of comfortable with that, okay, how can I... How, how, how can how do you how do you write a novel and just trying to get comfortable with that? It's like okay, so how do you get published? And it felt like just it was this long, endless journey of just just trying to learn, trying to learn, and then then along the way, meeting somebody who's early on in their journey, and maybe they have a question and about this process. And and uh, I think so, and so often my first thought is like I, I'm I'm still I'm still learning this myself, but then I realize. Oh, I, I guess I do know a thing or two. Actually, yeah. Let me here. Let, let me let me help you out. I remember having that question. I guess I I guess I do know um, something to offer in terms of of writing a a story or formatting a a query letter or how to address a an agent or or an editor. Just just little things that you learn along the way, but you forget how precious that information is when you don't know it. So I think it really is a, a good and important thing to to. You know, to be a mentor, even if it's not, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be a, a very strict one-on-one relationship, but just just being available to, to to writers who who are starting or have questions. So, well, I think that's awesome. And again, as, as far as the the, the Horror Writers Association goes, I think just having that community just really really fosters that. So, really think well, that's awesome. It can, and you know, I, I'll admit when I first came to the HWA. I, I went to a con up in Toronto and there was a bunch of old white guys, <laughs> long white hair and white beards. And they were all kind of standing around. And, you know, I, I was with Michael Cavillo, uh, bless his heart. I miss him every day. Uh, he passed away. But um, he, he and I and Ben Etheridge kind of ganged up together because there weren't that many other guys our age there. Mm-hmm. There weren't barely any women either. And we were sitting on a couch. We couldn't get into these conversations. We'd go over, hey, you know, what are you guys working on? They'd look at us like, you know, we just pooped on their mom's head. <laughs> you know, we're like, ah, oh, okay. And we sat down. We're like, you know, we're never going to do that. 
you know, we're never going to like not be inclusive like that and like guard stuff and, you know, make people feel uncomfortable. We're all like, man, we spent like a thousand dollars coming up here and these guys won't even give us the time of day, hmm. you know? We don't have a thousand dollars for this shit, you know. <laughs> so we kind of ended up, We always had that pact, like you know, you know, and that was that was probably fifteen. God, yeah, it's about fifteen years ago now. I want to say, um, and I always remember that moment. So when a new when a new person comes through the door, I always try to think, man, it took a lot for this person to make the decision to come here. They're probably scared. They're probably nervous. You know, they're probably like, oh God, what am I getting into? And <laughs> Writing means so much to, to writers. Their writing means everything to them. It is like they're they're giving you their heart on a platter. You know, it's terrifying. I, I I would go to signings and I'd be shaking when I was a kid meeting like Poppy Bright or Anne Rice and Brian Keene. I'd be like, oh my god, you know, mm-hmm. because it meant so much to me to meet these people. So I always try to put myself in their position, you know, and and be very empathetic and welcoming and warm um, because, <clears throat> you know, I think it's really really brave of people to go on this path. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I had a, a similar experience. Um, I guess it was maybe, uh, 11 years ago. I think I was at a, I was at a writer's conference, the Squaw Valley community of writers, and it was a week long conference. And while I was there, I had an opportunity to meet, uh, Amy Tan and she was easily the, 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 the most successful sort of mainstream international author who was, who was there that week. And so I had a copy of the Joy Luck Club that I wanted her to, to sign and I was very nervous to to meet her in large part because, you know, that's like it she felt like this big this mystical uh, you know, figure. And so I was I even even I one of the friends that I made that week, I, I I told her, you know, don't let me leave this room without meeting Amy Tan because I'll do it because I'm terrified. So so just stay uh-huh. on guard. And uh and so then I kind of got in line to meet her and then you know, when I got up to finally just spend my, you know, four or five minutes with her, uh, she was so nice and so giving and so, so uh, genuine with, with, with her time. And, and, and like, I know she meets people all the time, but for those five minutes, like she made me feel like my time with her was important to her. And so that, that stuck with me just from that day forward. And and I hadn't published anything at that point, but I just thought, you know, if I, if I ever have the opportunity to to be an author like that, I'm going to remember how that made me feel because I I've, I have no doubt that she doesn't remember that experience, but I'll remember I'll remember that for the rest of my life, and so that very much affected me now. So when I do have a chance to do a, a book signing or a reading or whatever, and if somebody is kind enough that they want to come say hi to me, like I always remember how much it meant to me that uh, that this author who I was nervous to talk to made me so comfortable and made me feel so so special so what you so so that so that idea of what what you're doing within that pact you made with your writer friend it's so valuable it's so important it really is because you know we're all people underneath all of this and anybody that's embarking on this kind of a, a path is i i found damaged goods usually at some that's <laughs> a profound level and uh they they need this and this is this is a uh you know a big part of them and, you know, I, I think that it's important to address that, you know, and, I, you know, it's, it's another philosophy I have is that my fellow artists aren't competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this this may be kind of crazy, but um, I don't think we're our competition. I think we we're our we need to be one another's friends because this publishing world is changing so drastically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I go to Barnes and Noble and I don't see a horror section, I get mad. <laughs> you know, I'm like, this is a huge store. Yeah. They have sections for knitting. They have sections for steampunk. 
for Christ's sake, but they don't have horror. And I, you know, my feeling is like, let's stick together and let's get so good and so many great writers that they're forced (laughs) to take, you know, and, and and I think there's plenty of room on the shelf for all of us. Absolutely. And they're going to need content constantly. You know, every couple of months they're going to need new books and there's plenty of room for everybody to have a, a good career. If we stick together, you know, if we start dividing and, 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 you know, again, the horror community often gets into these little, you know, tiffs and kerfuffle, kerfuffles. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, man, we shouldn't even be worrying about all this crap. Like who's weird, who's not, you know, all these crazy fights. <laughs> let's just band together and, and forget all that noise, man. And let's, you know, let's, let's storm the gates, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, man. And, and also too. So, uh, as, as we're sitting here talking, one of the, I think something that comes through, and I, and I, and I think people listening are, are hearing the same thing I'm his, hearing, is that you are you know you're just a genuinely good and nice person, which which I love, and a big reason why I love that is I, I love when good things happen to good people. So in your case, earlier this year in May 2016, you sort of reached a, a, a pinnacle in, in your in your writing career when you when you won the Bram Stoker Award for superior achievement in short fiction. And I would have been happy for you anyway, but the more we talk and the more that I like you and, and the more that I, you know, it's like, I, 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 I love seeing uh, a person like you achieve something like that. And so um, I don't, I don't have so much a question, but I would love to know just, just, just the whole experience of, you know, what had, you know, learning that you've been nominated to, to the actual process of that goes through to, to winning the award. Like what does that whole journey look like? Okay. Um, it, you know, it's, it, it was a long one. (laughs) Um, I had been, I had made the nomination a couple of years, um, running and I didn't, you know, either didn't get on the final ballot or didn't, didn't take home the award. And I think this was my fourth or fifth time making that final ballot. Mm -hmm. I had no illusions. I mean, I mean, on the, the ballot was unbelievable, you know, Damien Walters and, uh, you know, uh, Alyssa Wong story. I mean, I, my money was on them. <laughs> I was like, God, these, as soon as I read those, I, I kind of like closed the book on, on my, I'm like, man, that that's going to take it. Jeez. Wow. What a story, you know? And I had, I had prepared a speech and, um, I, I, I prepared it early. As soon as I made the final ballot, just as, as, you know, superstition. And then I folded it away, sure. put it in the back of my bag and I forgot about it. And, of course, because I'm VP, uh, they, they added more pressure, and I got seated next to R.L. Stein <laughs> and, and Serling, Rod Serling's uh, daughter, wow. Tony Timpone from Fangoria. And, you know, what, you know, I'm riffing with R.L. Stein, and it's, it's so weird to me. You know, I'm like, oh, my God. And then they called my name, and I was like, I'm going to just pass out and die. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow. And I usually don't get stage fright anymore. Um, um, but that, that I was definitely, you know, a little bit uh, stage struck. And, and just really surprised and shocked. Um, I'm not really sure why <laughs> <laughs> that particular story connected. Um, I mean, Happy Joe's rest stop. I, I, I would like to think it's, it's a lot of it is the voice. Mm-hmm. Um, if, I, if when I pitch it, it sounds kind of weird and hokey. You know, it's it's a boy and um, his dad gets separated to rest stop and then a gulf into the great nothing opens and a man with no face comes out and there's these weird things that start killing everybody. And somehow he has to find his dad. And you're like, okay, well, that's kind of not the most revolutionary story ever, you know, idea ever made. And, you know, um, but I think what came through, what I'm imagining came through was the voice. 
um, and and the real emotions that 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 son goes through, you know, like oh my god, because he's on the cusp of you know being a young man, and he has to rise, and he has to do it without his dad for the first time, and you know it doesn't even seem like he can do it, and I think that might have been what connected. Um, I'm not sure. I, I think as artists we never know, mm-hmm. but. It was it's it's still surreal to me. I look at the little the little statue on my shelf and it's very weird to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and I see Bram Stoker winner on, you know, the promo materials for my stuff. I'm like, wow, that's really bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> um, do, do I you know, you, you do go through a lot of like self doubts. You're like, wow, I'm, you know, my stuff is in there with others of that caliber. Am, am I there? And then I think, no, nah, I'm not there. <laughs> <laughs> I still have work to do. I I this was a mistake and I have to reprove it that I actually earned this. I have to do better than <laughs> but that's my philosophy. You know, I always want to like, you know, I don't feel like I can rest on my laurels, you know? <laughs> that's so awesome, man. That's awesome. Um, well, listen, we'll, we'll wrap up in just a second. You've been very generous with your time, but is there anything that, uh, that we haven't touched on? Cause I'd, I'd hate to, to wrap up if, if there's anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't quite get to. Um, the only, the only big thing I'd like to just, you know, shout out to other writers and, um, we kind of touched on it is that I really do think we're, we're, we're entering a new age where we're all going to be our own kind of islands as far as putting our stuff out and, and, you know, promoting stuff. And I think we all need to get ready for that (laughs) because I think the writing is on the wall. I hate to say it. And, you know, I think the New York publishers are, are changing drastically and, um, the bookstores are changing. And, and I think we all kind of have to get ready for another big seismic shift. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's all stick together <laughs> and communicate because that is what's going to keep literature going. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I think that's a, not only a great point, but, uh, but, but a poignant point that, uh, you know, you know, we, you know, we can still be sort of the, cause being a writer is a little, it's, it's a little bit like being on your own personal island but uh but to keep to, to keep connected and uh, to keep connected as a as a community of, of writers i think it's 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 both um uh, pragmatically it'll make sense for us but also just in terms of, in the sense of creating community i think it's a a good thing and a wonderful thing and so i'm i'm uh, i'm in on that with you cool yeah and i you know the the stories will stay the same the songs will stay the same <laughs> <laughs> but we can't the business model is going to change again and i i think you know it's going to be hard for a lot. There's going to be growing pains, <laughs> you know? But. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, John, I'll be honest. There's actually, I actually had more that I wanted to, to talk to you with about, but I think, um, I think I would, I'll just use that as an excuse to have you back on the show sometime soon. Cause I really enjoyed this conversation. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I'd love to. It's been fantastic. Very, uh, very, very great. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. Well, in that case, thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, I look forward to doing it again with you sometime very soon. Likewise, man. Have a good one. And there you have it. There you have it. That was my guest, John Palisano. Uh, What a great guy, right? Sweet, charming, insightful. Just an all-around nice guy, and and I really uh, I really meant it when I told him that it's you know the the success that he's enjoyed, and in particular you know, um, being recognized with that award, that, that Bram Stoker award. Uh, I, I was, I was happy for him anyway, but then having a chance to, to talk to him like this for an hour or so and really connect with him and see just what a truly nice guy he is makes that accomplishment all the more 
just I don't know, just all the more better, all the more nicer. Like it's I just love seeing good people, um, good people rewarded with with cool stuff like that. Uh, also, I'm pretty sure I wasn't quite saying his name correctly in the intro. I, I even told him as much like right before we started recording. I told him I, I just did this intro, and I think I might have said your name wrong a few times. His name it's pronounced Palisano. I think I called him Palisino once or twice. So uh, uh, privately, I, I offered him apology, but also publicly, John, if I fucked your name up a couple times in the intro, totally on me. Uh, did not mean to do that. So John Palisano, this is how you say it. And that's going to do it for, for this week's episode. So, uh, again, um, I want to thank my guest, John Palisano, for, for being a, a wonderful guest. And I do look forward to having him back on the show uh, Sunday soon. Uh, I want to thank all of you uh, for, for listening. Uh, in, in particular, if you're, uh, if you're fans of John Palisano and, this is the, and you listen to this episode specifically because you are a fan of, of John's and it's your first time listening to the podcast, I hope you enjoyed yourself. And I hope you'll come back and uh, maybe listen to some new episodes, maybe go back and listen to some uh, some older episodes. Uh, if you enjoy conversations like this with authors, that's uh, you're, you'll find a whole lot of them uh, on my podcast. So so you are I invite you to, to go back into the into into the backlog of, of episodes and conversations I've had. And uh, and and also again, if 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 if, if you enjoy the show, please uh, please do subscribe on iTunes or uh, catch the show on Stitcher Radio or like I said, I discovered this morning it's also available on on Podcat, which is very cool. And of course, go to the official website as well, MartinLestrapsShow.com. And uh, and that's going to do it. We will we will call it a wrap on episode number one hundred and forty three. Thanks again to John Palisano. I really loved that conversation. Thank you all for listening, and until next time, I will see you on the other side.